Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm on our website, lalaw.com. I would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, SunTrust, offering private wealth management solutions at suntrust.com slash law. On today's show, we will discuss ITC investigations, why companies are choosing the International Trade Commission over district court litigation for patent disputes. Under Section 337 of the Tariff Act, the U.S. International Trade Commission, an independent administrative agency, is charged with investigations of unfair trade practices related to importation of products. If, after investigation, the ITC determines that such unfair trade practices have been involved, they have the power to exclude the product from the U.S. Now, recent happenings and holdings have directly impacted the surge in popularity of the ITC as a forum for patent disputes. For example, there was a 2006 Supreme Court holding in eBay v. Merck Exchange, a 2008 holding by the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit regarding downstream products, the general acceptance of uh, foreign, uh, Asian and foreign, other foreign companies becoming more aggressive uh, to using the ITC to block infringing imports, and of course, the large growth of imported products within the United States. All these and other factors have contributed to the trend of companies choosing the ITC for patent disputes. Joining me today to discuss these and other issues is my guest and colleague, Craig Smith. Craig is a highly successful intellectual property trial attorney who has represented technology companies of all sizes, startups to Fortune 50 companies, in patent, trade secret, and related disputes in federal, state courts throughout the country, and abroad, as well as in the ITC. These matters have involved a wide variety of technologies, including semiconductors, software, optics, medical devices, and chemistry. He is a frequent author and commentator on these issues, and he has been acknowledged as a 2010 New England super lawyer in IP litigation, and even several years ago as one of the 15 up-and-coming lawyers by Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. His work in a defense of software giant Microsoft was selected by the National Law Journal for inclusion in its annual list of top defense wins. Welcome to IP Council, Craig. Thanks for having me, Peter. Welcome. Um, let's get right into it. There's a lot to talk about with the International Trade Commission and its practice. Perhaps um, our listeners might not be so familiar with it, and uh, maybe a little background would be useful as far as the International Trade Commission, the structure of the, uh, of the body. So the ITC, or the International Trade Commission, is a federal administrative agency that's headquartered in Washington, D.C., 
the ITC is unique in that it handles complaints re- relating to unfair competition, uh, specifically with respect to the importation of products into the United States. Uh, the ITC is headed by six commissioners who are appointed by the President of the United States. And although it has a quasi-judicial role, it's not actually a court, uh, although it has administrative law judges who are responsible for handling complaints that are uh, put forward in front of the International Trade Commission. And for some of the purposes for today's conversation, uh, patent owners, in addition to other people, can file complaints with the International Trade Commission. And in particular, they can file a complaint relating to alleged patent infringement uh, for products that are being imported into the United States. I see. So, so yes, for today's discussion, we'll we'll talk only, I suppose, about patent uh, uh, infringement. But uh, uh, does the charge of the ITC include other uh, intellectual property? Uh, it also includes trademarks and other intellectual property. So they can hear complaints relating to uh, trademark infringement, for example. I see. And and this is um, under the um, Tariff Act. So I I take it then again with regard to just patents, it's it's separate from the from the Patent Act. That's correct. Yes, it has a separate statutory uh, basis for its jurisdiction. Um, and specifically, it focuses on products that are coming into the United States um, so that the ITC is responsible both for trying to protect trade, but also providing guidance to the president and Congress about tariffs and potentially unfair trade practices that might be occurring. I see. Okay. And um, just uh, just so uh, folks understand, I mean, this has been around for some time, has it not? It has been, yes. And um, so it's, but it's gained in popularity. I I, I cited a few um, kind of recent, uh, at least recent rationale why, at least my perception, why things were picking up uh, as far as um, um, uh, companies taking advantage of the ITC as a forum. Um, but uh, it, it had been around for some time. What what types of cases in the kind of the uh, earlier years would, would find their way to the ITC? Uh, there'd be disputes over unfair competition, um, uh, improper tariffs uh, where companies felt like they, they were being uh, not treated fairly uh, with respect to products uh, coming into the United States. Uh, and so the ITC had a, you know, sort of a jurisdiction that would cover products that are being imported to the United States, as well as recommendations and uh, research relating to tariffs and, and other activity that could be classified as unfair competition. I see. Now, um, with regard to the the procedure, you mentioned there were six um, commissioners appointed by the president and um but but as far as the maybe maybe the listeners have got a better feel for it it's there's there's six commissioners who hear these cases and um is there a staff that supports the uh the commissioners yes the itc the way the the judges are structured in the itc seems to look very similar to what you would expect in a district court in the sense that The judges have clerks who help them with each of the investigations that the judge is responsible for, and there's other staff who are also helping uh, 
um, make sure that cases get handled um, as they move through the system. Uh, since cases move very quickly in the ITC, they obviously need the, the appropriate staff to help the judges um, move those cases through. Okay. So you, you mentioned uh, cases move through quickly. Uh, maybe you can you can speak a little bit to procedure because I'm getting a sense then if things are moving quickly, then uh, there, there's a tremendous home field advantage or or at least for the for the complainant um, to prepare their case. And maybe you can shed some light on that. Yes. So one of the advantages about the ITC is that the once a complaint has been filed and initiated, things can move very quickly. The actual process for starting a an investigation in front of the ITC starts with the filing of a complaint. So a, a typical situation would be a company would file a complaint with the International Trade Commission requesting that they start an investigation into activity that the complainant believes to be unfair or unfair competition. And so once the complaint has been filed, the ITC will then start the process of reviewing the complaint, and within about 30 days, we'll decide whether or not to institute an investigation. Uh, once the investigation has been instituted, then things start moving very quickly, meaning that the administrative law judge will set a schedule and a target date for completion of the investigation, and that will start the, the process for moving through the case. And unlike district court cases, which can often take many years to uh, go from filing the complaint to completion, in an ITC investigation, you can have a complaint filed and have an initial determination by the administrative law judge within nine months, which is incredibly fast. And then you can even get a final determination from the International Trade Commission within approximately 16 months of filing the complaint. So things move very, very quickly. And you're right that the person who's filing the complaint has an advantage over those companies that get named as a respondent in an investigation because the person filing the complaint has the ability to prepare ahead of time for what they know is going to happen. Whereas the respondent, once they get named in the complaint and the investigation starts, they have very little time to prepare and get ready for the investigation. Tell me a little bit about what goes in a complaint and what types of evidence um, are um, are useful in making the case. In, in cases I'm familiar with, they're uh, uh, kind of in the matter of certain chips or something along those lines. It's not your traditional heading in, uh, you know, um, um, company A versus company B. Um, what? How is a complaint structured? Sure. So, again, this is a big difference between district court litigation and litigation in the International Trade Commission. A complaint that you file with the International Trade Commission is much more detailed and much more complex in how it's prepared and put together. Um, for example, the ITC requires that you set forth certain uh, pieces of information in order for them to even consider the complaint uh, as part of the process for instituting an investigation. So, for example, they'll require detailed claim charts where you have to put forward for every independent claim that's being asserted in the investigation, 
you have to have a claim chart that shows why you believe that particular claim is infringed by the product that you're accusing of infringement. Nothing like that is required in a, a traditional district court litigation. And so the International Trade Commission is really putting a much higher burden on the complainant to set forth a significant amount of evidence before it will even consider the complaint uh, and decide whether or not to institute the investigation. Another aspect of a complaint that gets uh, filed with the International Trade Commission is a showing of domestic industry. Uh, this is a requirement that's unique to the International Trade Commission and something you wouldn't find in a district court case. The domestic industry component of a complaint would set forth why um, this particular patent that you're asserting is being used by you and how it's being used by you. Um, in the past, this often required showing that you were manufacturing a product that is covered by the patent that you're asserting and that you've invested substantial resources in this process. Um, more recent uh, cases have looked at this area of the law and broadened it quite a bit to include licensing activity relating to the patent so that you no longer have to necessarily have a product that's covered by the product, by the patent that you're asserting. You might not even manufacture a, a product at all, but if you are able to show sufficient licensing activity relating to the, the patents that you're asserting, that may be enough to satisfy the domestic industry requirement uh, that is required with every complaint that gets filed with the International Trade Commission. Right. I've noticed that's liberalized some. There was that uh, Columbia University law professor, even even her legal fees, if it was shown that some portion of those fees went toward the licensing program um, to support domestic industry. Yeah, uh, that's right. The, there's been a number of cases recently where the International Trade Commission has been looking at what would be required for someone who isn't a traditional manufacturer of a product covered by a patent, uh, what would be the requirements for them in order for them to be able to file an, a complaint in front of the International Trade Commission. And so they're looking at what licensing activity would be sufficient enough, and in some cases saying the amount of money that you spend on your attorneys for purposes of uh, trying to license a patent may be sufficient to show that you have a domestic industry um, as required by the ITC. I see. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I guess I'm guessing, but uh, where that might have been a battleground uh, for the respondent to say, you know, there wasn't enough evidence of domestic industry, what have you, and and so uh, things have evolved. But on on what policy basis has the ITC um, kind of liberalize the standard for domestic industry, at least my perception of that is the case. Is, is that not? I think if I understood your question, there's certainly been um, several cases that seem to have expanded the reach of what is considered domestic industry. Mm -hmm. um, there were amendments going back to 1988 um, that broaden the definition of what domestic industry covers, and that broadening included licensing of the intellectual property. So starting back in about 1988, um, more people began to realize that you didn't necessarily have to have a product that was manufactured and covered by the patent 
that you're asserting, but that you now could have a situation where the mere licensing of the patented technology would be enough to satisfy the domestic industry requirement. And that's a that's a very significant change because what it has led to gradually from 1988 to the present is that it has led to companies that aren't manufacturing any products and their sole function is the licensing and creating revenue from the licensing of their intellectual property being able to bring ITC investigations. In the past, that would have been unheard of that companies would have been able to do that, but now that is becoming much more prevalent and you're seeing more non-practicing entities being able to come in front of the ITC and file a complaint and provided that they're able to show substantial efforts in the licensing of the intellectual property, they're able to get over this hurdle of showing that there's a domestic industry relating to the patents that are being asserted. I see. So uh, basically, I guess I'm I'm summarizing what I'm hearing that um, licensing activity um, has indeed become a domestic um, kind of industry. It's a, a rather important one, and um, perhaps Congress has taken note of that and made a, made a point to make amendments into uh, including the uh, uh, licensing activity. I think that's right. I think the real impetus for the amendment that took place in 1988 relating to the definition of what domestic industry uh, entails and including licensing activity was the concern that the old definition of domestic industry would have excluded universities and other entities that really get a lot of their resources through licensing their intellectual property, but do not actually uh, make a significant investment in plants or equipment or manufacturing products that are covered by the patents, and that this type of amendment would now allow those entities that are really using their intellectual property as a mechanism to create revenue and, and generate money through the licensing activities to give them the ability to use the ITC if necessary for purposes of protecting their intellectual property. I see. So, um, uh, Craig, the, after the complaint is filed, does the ITC review it for completeness and get back to the to the uh, complainant? Um, as far as you know, maybe you could add a little more evidence here or there. Do they do they provide that type of advisory guidance? Uh, they do. Oftentimes, people will actually have their complaint before it's filed uh, reviewed by the ITC ahead of time, and they'll have um, someone within the ITC review the complaint and give them feedback on are there any deficiencies or any areas that should be improved prior to filing the complaint. And so there's some back and forth that they'll often have with the ITC before the complaint is even filed to try to avoid the situation that you file the complaint and um, the ITC finds some deficiency in it and rejects the complaint for that reason. So oftentimes people will actually go to the ITC first before the complaint's even filed to try to make sure that any of those deficiencies get worked out prior to the filing. Okay. And and uh, take me through it then. So it's filed, it's accepted. How How is a respondent or the number, the several respondents in some cases, how are they notified? So they can be notified in fairly simple ways, meaning that 
Um, unlike in a district court case where there are very formal service requirements, you could be notified by mail. Uh, you could be given notice just by uh, having them send you some copy of the complaint and, and notification that you've been named as a respondent in the investigation. Um, so it's a fairly informal service uh, in comparison to what you'd see in a district court case because in the ITC, their jurisdiction really stems from the fact that they are trying to control products coming into the United States. And so their jurisdiction is over the products as opposed to over the parties. And so they're they're simply notifying the respondents that you've been named in this complaint and you have a right to um, have yourself represented in the uh, ITC investigation. Okay. And how, how much time do they have to respond? Well, initially, they don't have to do anything in the sense that when they're initially notified of the complaint, they don't have to do anything because their obligations don't really start to occur until the investigation has been instituted. And so that will usually take at least 30 days after the filing of the complaint. So they don't have to make an appearance until after that if they don't want to. But then after that, they would normally make an appearance um, and through an attorney typically would file a notice of appearance to uh, be represented in the investigation. And then they, um, they they is there some period to respond after that, I imagine? Right. So then after the respondents have appeared, they will have a period of time to file a response to the complaint as it's been uh, set forth. Um, and then the administrative law judge will set a schedule for the going forward in the case. And the, the critical date that gets set is the target date for when they think the investigation will be complete. And then that that target date will then um, drive most of the other dates that take place in the investigation. Okay. So let me, uh, before we go to break, I just want to uh, wrap it up from there. So say say the case goes forward and um, both parties are heard and evidence is taken. I, I imagine uh, federal rules of evidence and civil procedure apply or? They, they don't necessarily apply, although some of the same rules are used in uh, an ITC investigation. Uh, the ITC has its own rules, and each judge has rules that apply to their particular uh, instances. Um, but there are instances where uh, the ITC will rely on uh, the federal rules of civil procedure in some instances to give guidance as to how things should proceed. I see. And um, ultimately then, say the ITC finds there was unfair trade practice, they hold um, that's the case. What what's the remedy that that they can they can offer? So the one remedy that the ITC can offer is called an exclusion order, which is like an injunction. Uh, an exclusion order is issued basically preventing products from being imported into the United States, um, and so that order would go to customs, and customs would be instructed to prevent the importation of certain products into the United States. Uh, an exclusion order can also be accompanied by what's called a cease and desist order that would then be directed to the specific company that was a respondent in the investigation, indicating that they should cease all importation of products that have been found to infringe on the patents asserted in the case. Okay. 
Okay, very good. Um, Let's take a short break here, and uh, when we return, we'll get more into the ITC practice with with, with Craig Smith. And uh, now a word from our sponsor, SunTrust. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Craig Smith and we are discussing ITC investigations and their growing use in patent disputes. Uh, Craig, we touched on a bunch of things before the break, and um, you had mentioned that it, and um, I kind of jotted down a note on um, non-practicing entities and the uh, the kind of the use of the ITC by non-practicing entities, and we talked a little bit about licensing as a domestic industry and what have you. Uh, is there any rationale for the, um, at, least, at least to my eye, I'm noticing non-practicing entities um, taking advantage of the ITC where I had not seen that before? Yes, I think there's been quite a surge in the number of complaints that are getting filed with the ITC. If you look back only about 10 years ago, you typically see 10 or 15 complaints filed with the ITC in any given year. But within the past few years, those numbers have gone up dramatically. I think in 2010, there were over 50 complaints filed with the ITC and probably over 100 active investigations that are currently going forward. I think one of the reasons why we've seen an increase in the number of ITC investigations is because in district court litigations after eBay, um, there's been a perception that it's going to be much harder to get an injunction uh, after the Supreme Court's decision in eBay. So I think many companies and non-practicing entities have looked at the ITC as an alternate forum for them to get an injunction where they might not otherwise be able to get one. And I think the the threat of an injunction or an exclusion as it's used in the ITC is a a very um, big threat um, because it is able to stop the entire importation of products into the United States. Um, And that can be a, a big enough stick that will result in respondents settling the case or coming up with some resolution to resolve the case uh, short of getting all the way to a trial. Okay. You're, you're referring to the uh, 2006 Supreme Court eBay v. Merck Exchange case where they, the Supreme Court uh, noted the four-part test for injunctions being a requirement. 
That's right. I mean, in eBay, they the court basically held that there's no general rule that you get an automatic injunction with a finding of infringement. And the Supreme Court said patent cases, like every other case, uh, has to look at the four factors before granting an injunction in a case. And so I think after eBay, there's been a concern within the, the patent community that getting an injunction even after showing infringement, is going to be much more difficult because satisfying all four of the factors may not be possible unless you happen to be in a situation where you have sued a direct competitor in the industry, in which case that may satisfy the, the four prongs of the test necessary to get an injunction. So, so does the Supreme Court decision have no uh, impact on the ITC? Um, it in terms of an impact, it certainly um, is something that the ITC could look towards in terms of injunctive relief, but it wouldn't change the way the ITC looks at its mandate and how it looks at its precedent relating to injunctions. The sole relief that the ITC can provide is an exclusion order, and it has the test that it uses for determining whether or not an exclusion would take place in a particular instance. Um, and the ITC has certainly, over the past few years, looked at you know what is required in order to grant either a limited exclusion order or a general exclusion order. But the, the Supreme Court's decision in eBay hasn't changed that standard by which the uh, ITC determines whether it's going to issue an exclusion order. Okay. I've seen recently uh, some a, a note uh, that the ITC is is uh, considering a public interest rule, which is, um, I guess, one of the factors anyway of uh, whether an injunction should be granted. And and um, how are how are practitioners pan- accepting that that proposal? Right. The ITC recently proposed a rule that um, you would require that when you filed your complaint that you'd have to set forth evidence relating to the impact of an exclusion order on the public interest. And although typically a complaint would include some statement about it, uh, the ITC rule would be a much stronger requirement that from the very beginning of the investigation, you'd be putting forward evidence as to what would be the impact of an exclusion order on the public interest. I think attorneys have been concerned about this proposed rule change because they're fearing that by requiring a much stronger showing of how the exclusion order would affect the public interest, it might be signaling that the ITC would be more willing to reject or modify an exclusion order if there was a significant impact on the public interest. Now, the ITC has always had a requirement that you have to look at the public interest before entering in an exclusion order. That typically happened at the end of the investigation after infringement had been found and the parties were before the commission asking for an exclusion order. That would be one of the factors that would have to be considered and evidence would be put forward in it. Uh, this rule change would push much of that to the very beginning of the investigation, requiring the parties from the very beginning to be collecting and putting forth evidence about the impact of an exclusion order on the public interest. I see. Okay. Now, now you've mentioned several times that the ITC can only grant exclusion orders, um, kind of injunctions. 
what does a party do to seek damages? And um, so, if a, if a party was interested in damages relating to patent infringement, they wouldn't be able to get damages through the International Trade Commission. For monetary damages, they would have to file a complaint in district court uh, alleging patent infringement. And so that's one of the disadvantages of the ITC is that the ITC has a very limited remedy that it can provide. Its sole remedy is the exclusion order. It doesn't have the ability to grant any damages for any past infringement. It also, as a result of being the sole remedy um, in the ITC, it also means that companies faced with a uh, a complaint in the ITC have the ability to design around the complaint or design around the alleged patent that's in the complaint. So, for example, if a company that has been named as a respondent in an ITC investigation immediately designs around whatever the patent claims require, they can put that design around before the International Trade Commission and get a ruling during the investigation that that design around does not infringe the patent. And that's a very powerful tool for being able to get rid of an, an, a potential exclusion order because you have now put forward an actual design around that gets you past the, the patent that's being asserted against you. I see. Now, if, if they're going concurrently, a district court and the ITC, does one get stayed uh, while the other is proceeding or do they go concurrently and they go at the same time? By statute, the district court litigation would get stayed pending the ITC investigation so that if there are the same patents at issue in the district court case as well as in the ITC litigation, the district court case would get stayed pending the ITC investigation and then could be um, picked up again after the ITC investigation is complete. Now, are there res judicata or other effects of the ITC's holdings, say, on claim construction or or otherwise on the district court? Not really, because there are differences in how the ITC reviews and uh, looks at the evidence versus what the district court would do. A claim construction in the ITC would not necessarily uh, be imposed on a district court judge, although a district court judge might find that information interesting for purposes of claim construction. And by the same token, a finding of non-infringement or infringement by the administrative law judge in the ITC wouldn't be binding in any district court, uh, primarily because different standards are applied. And in the district court, uh, a fact finder, such as a jury, would be responsible for making the decision relating to infringement Whereas in the ITC, the administrative law judge is making that initial determination. Okay. I, I know you've had experience with, with that type of situation. Was that, in fact, uh, did the ITC's decision influence the uh, district court? Uh, in the case that I handled in the ITC, the administrative law judge found that there was no infringement and that the patents that were asserted against my clients uh, were invalid. Um, that decision then went up to the commission, which upheld the decision from the administrative law judge. I think that finding by the ITC was instrumental in getting rid of the district court case, although we didn't actually have to put any motion in front of the court. The complainant in that particular instance um, dis 
dismissed the district court complaint shortly after the ITC investigation was complete. And so we didn't have to put in front of the judge the findings from the ITC. Um, they decided to voluntarily dismiss that complaint. Okay. All right. I, wanna, I just want to backtrack just a little bit on uh, exclusion orders. I've, I've noticed you mentioned the great growth in the number of complaints. I've also noticed, as, uh, as perhaps you have as well, in the complaints themselves, there's a uh, perhaps more respondents, more more defendants, respondents being named in each case. Um, there's a, a perhaps a trend in that in that direction, and um, perhaps you can shed some light on that. Yes, I think that's primarily been a result of a decision that came down a few years ago called the Kyocera decision, and in that case, the Federal Circuit held that the ITC cannot issue an exclusion order directed at downstream products where the companies that manufacture those products were not part of the ITC investigation. So as a result, if you are a complainant and you've named a respondent who manufactures a particular product and you're able to show that that product infringes, the ITC will issue an exclusion order as to that specific product by the the company that was manufacturing it. However, under this decision in Kyocera, it cannot issue an exclusion order that would cover the products where the infringing product is incorporated into it. So, for example, in the Kyocera decision, what was going on there was Broadcom had filed an ITC complaint against Qualcomm, but in the complaint, it didn't actually name any of the customers that might have been using the chips. So Broadcom sought an exclusion order preventing importation of Qualcomm's chips, as well as any downstream products that include those chips. And the Federal Circuit held that the exclusion order could preclude Qualcomm's chips but couldn't go so far as to exclude those chips as they are incorporated into other products such as cell phones or other devices. And that in order to get that relief, um, Broadcom would have had to have named other companies that were selling devices that also included those chips in them. So I think what we're seeing now uh, a few years after the Kyocera decision is that companies are deciding strategically that in order to get the broadest possible relief by the ITC, you have to name many more respondents to make sure that you're covering the different products that might incorporate the allegedly infringing technology. So I think that's probably why we're starting to see a larger number of respondents named in complaints is they want to make sure that complainants want to make sure that they're covering as many possible uh, products uh, in their ITC complaint. Okay, okay. So there is there is a very good rationale why uh, why things have ticked up in the ITC. Perhaps perhaps we can end with uh, just to wrap it up for uh, our listeners with with the advantages of proceeding in the ITC. Sure, the ITC is a very effective forum for resolving disputes relating to. Um, potentially infringing products, especially if the products that a complainant believes infringes their patent are being imported into the United States. Um, Probably the biggest advantage to the ITC today is the ability to exclude products. 
the the ability to get an injunction against products coming into the United States is a very strong remedy and I think is a primary driver for why many people are going to the ITC today. Um, also, the ITC has the advantage of being very fast. Um, incredible to be able to get an initial determination in nine months and get a final determination within 16 months. That's much faster than you can get in the district court. And as a result, there's oftentimes a cost savings associated with that speed uh, because you're you're getting a decision so much faster than you might otherwise get in a district court case. The ITC also offers the advantages of being able to um, focus on many different uh, respondents, some of whom may be foreign manufacturers who you wouldn't necessarily be able to sue in any specific district court in the United States since the, the ITC is focused on the products that are coming into the United States as opposed to the companies that might be manufacturing or selling those products. Uh, you're able to cast a wider net in terms of the companies that you can name as a respondent in an ITC investigation. And I think that one of the final points to make with respect to the advantages of the ITC is that the ITC has these administrative law judges that are very familiar with patent cases. They've handled many cases in the past, and therefore, they're used to the issues that tend to come up in patent litigation. And so you're getting a decision by someone who has seen many patent cases and understands the, the law that goes into play when trying to decide issues of infringement and validity. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Craig. I think you've taken a, uh, a complex topic and made it quite digestible. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Peter. And that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com, and you can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. A very special thanks to my guest, Craig Smith, for joining me today. Craig, how, how can folks reach you for more information on this topic? Uh, they could reach me at csmith at lalaw.com. Um, they could also look me up on our website, which is www.lalaw.com. Very good. And as you know, you can also contact me at that very same website or email me directly at plando at lalaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.